how do we calm that monkey mind, right? And it's not the same way for everybody because the, the circus of our mind and the monkeys that are jumping around look different for every person. And, and finding what works, it means giving it an, an open mind at, at trying them out. Welcome to the Together Sober Podcast. I'm your host, Louise Barnett, former Fortune 100 Global Sales Director turned Jay Shetty Accredited Life Coach. Each week, we will provide you a safe space of guidance, empathy, accountability, and support, helping you to find effortless sobriety and mental peace. You know the whole concept of paying it forward? That's exactly what Hit Subscribe does. It sends a message to the universe, to people who need to hear the lessons and the tools from the Together Sober podcast. Hit subscribe. Welcome back to the Together Sober podcast, where our mission every single week is to create survival guides out of our collective stories and an effort for you to find lasting and effortless sobriety. Now, when I think about a guest to bring onto the podcast, it's critically important to me that not only are we presenting you, dear listener, with a story of this individual, but we're also presenting unique skills, unique ideas, unique resources. And that's kind of the reason I'm so excited about this guest today, because she is a powerhouse of all three of those things. I'm talking about Angie Chaplin. Angie is a consultant and speaker. She's in mindful leadership and a regional coordinator of smart recovery. And when released from her fifth hospitalization for life threatening alcohol use disorder in February 2020, Angie was given two choices by the medical team. Option one was to keep drinking and die. And option two was to stop drinking and have a chance at a better life. Angie chose wisely and entered an intensive outpatient treatment program with face-to-face -face counseling and group therapy. But as we know, this was February of 2020. And what happened like 40 days later, COVID. COVID happened and it put a halt to the in-person services that had become the foundation for Angie's newfound sobriety. At a crossroads with no clear path forward, Angie turned to what she knew best from her graduate work in leadership development to continue leading herself away from what no longer served her. And she leaned towards values-based, self-empowered leadership. So what that means today in 2023, as we record this, Angie is sober. She is the founder and owner of Mindful Leadership, and Angie is a sought-after consultant and speaker known for her inspiring journey of courageous authenticity. Overcoming severe alcohol use disorder to achieve recognition as an alcohol-free industry leader and advocate, Angie's self-leadership story exemplifies her values of integrity, curiosity, clarity, connection, and love. 
Angie, we are so grateful to have you here on the podcast platform today. Welcome to Together Sober. Thank you, Louise. What a joy to be with you. This has been many years in the making, and I'm I'm truly honored to be part of your podcast. Absolutely. I know we were saying before we hit the record button, Angie and I have sort of admired each other's work from afar for many years. We cross paths constantly in a lot of the online platforms and communities. And, um, you know, it's, it's only in opportunities like this that we really get to take our magnifying glass and like take a closer look and lens at what it is exactly you're doing and contributing to the sobriety and recovery community. And I just, I can't wait to get started and hear your story and how this really all evolved from an individual who really was struggling with addiction to, you know, somebody that you kind of had to make a really fast, quick, smart decision um, in the middle of your kind of crucial time of your recovery. So um, Angie, without further ado, I would love for you to just share with us as much or as little as you'd like of your story. um, And we'll see that where that takes us today. My story with alcohol being an increasingly at that time, important and crucial role in my life really started in my 40s. So I grew up in a household that was, for most intents and purposes, healthy. There wasn't a lot of drinking. Uh, I grew up in a small town. My mom um, was a stay-at-home mom. My father was an educator and school administrator. You know, I was a cheerleader. I was active in speech and drama and band and, and you know, doing healthy things and making positive choices. And even through college, by those standards, I was a normal drinker as we knew them back in college. And when I when I hit really my 40s, it became a, a perfect storm of ingredients that I did not have healthy coping skills in place. So the loss of a job that I had dearly loved the loss of a close friend who lost her battle to cancer, the deterioration of a marriage. And it, it was those that combination that I did not know how to deal with the negative emotions and the struggles that developed. And like many people, alcohol became that escapism and just continued to have a problematic effect in my life. So it was it was a decade of escalating struggles that I continued to have no way forward. I, I lost my sense of identity. I would try to get sober and would fail and then would fall deeper into the shame and the guilt that are all too common when when we really see no way forward. And between 20, the end of 2018 and early 2020, I was hospitalized five times. And each time would become more serious in nature. And it was due to not only the intense amount of alcohol I was drinking, which would include up to three bottles of wine a day. If that proved problematic, then I would try switching to a different substance and thinking, oh, if if the problem is wine, the problem isn't alcohol, and then it'd be, you know, cases of beer. And that would put me in the hospital multiple times for the dilution of electrolytes in my blood, 
but also the level of sodium in my blood, blood would reach life-threatening low levels. And in February of 2020, I was admitted to the hospital in critical condition. So I was admitted to intensive care, um, spent time in critical care, and that was about a five-day period of which I have vague memories or or hallucinations. And when I when I was getting discharged from the hospital, that was when the, the doctor really set me straight in terms of what choices I had. And and his you know, his, and again, I don't know, I, I don't remember his name. I don't know if it was the way that he was very direct and in my face, or if it was just simply I was ready to absorb the, the life-changing messages I needed to hear. He said, you are literally killing yourself with alcohol. So you can continue down that path. You can keep drinking and you will die. You know, this time was critical intensive care. Next time, it might not have this type of outcome. Or the second choice was to quit drinking and have a chance at a better life. And like you mentioned, I chose wisely. And, and that's when I entered the IOP that was hospital-based. And of course, 40 days later, COVID put a pause on any services and just like most providers in healthcare, mental health, it, it was difficult to know how to pivot from in-person services to the same level of supportive uh, care and wraparound care that individuals struggling might need. And that's when I turned to what I had spent much of my career and much of my life investing in, and that was building leadership skills so instead of looking at it as building leadership skills in other people, I really turned that around and uh, focused on building myself from the inside out mm -hmm. as a self-empowered leader whom would be the type of role model that I wanted my kids to have. Mm -hmm. And now we're looking at three plus years of staying grounded in those values as a result of choosing to want to live differently. Wow. And it's been sustained. Isn't it amazing how oftentimes something that can feel like such a curse, right? Like COVID comes, the in-person meetings are shut down. Mm -hmm. 40 days sober is not a lot of days sober. Right. Right. Um, you know, you're hanging on by a thread, you could argue. Yet when you kind of look back in retrospect and wonder, would would Angie have ever like put these puzzle pieces together or like connected the dots between leadership and sobriety and recovery if right. you weren't given this challenge and this opportunity? Exactly. Yeah. I want to ask you a question about your uh recovery story as it relates to your your journey to really finally making that decision to make a change. And like you said, Maybe it was the doctor's tone, his approach. Maybe you were just ready, like who knows? But I'm curious, you mentioned earlier in the story that in your um, active drinking years that there were times where you had considered quitting or trying to stop. Right. Can you just share a little bit about what those experiences were and, and maybe your perception now looking back, what always kind of dragged you back in? Yeah, for sure. And and like many organizations or many individuals, 
at that time, there was really one framework that was presented, and that was the 12-step model. I fully support 12 steps and that approach for individuals because I know that for people it works, right? For me, it was not the right solution. And as somebody who has grown up and has studied strengths-based perspectives, walking into a 12-step meeting had me in a scarcity mindset. Mm -hmm. So rather than tapping into the strengths that I knew I had, I felt uncomfortable and inauthentic having to say I am powerless. Mm -hmm. I could not say that because truly, I believed even at my worst, I believe I had power. Mm -hmm. I believe that alcohol deadened that power, silenced that power, buried that power but it was still there. And the reason I know that is because of where I am today. So the model of the traditional 12 step framework was not my pathway forward. Mm -hmm. Thankfully now I've become affiliated as a meeting facilitator and regional coordinator for Smart Recovery. And there, as we know, are multiple pathways to recovery. And it's, it's understanding that why one solution doesn't work for an individual is simply because that's not what fits their, their model. Mm -hmm. um, so the times that I would attempt to move forward, it was because I hadn't yet found my path forward. Mm -hmm. And that's what would keep me stepping back instead of taking steps forward. That makes a lot of sense. And I like what you shared about lack mindset, because I think that can be applied just on a broader scale, right? Like not just to a specific, you know, AA model or anything. Cause a lot of times we do see, and I know I've, I've experienced this myself, like beginning sobriety, like you focus so much on what you're missing out on, or you focus so much on what you're giving up or what you're losing. Yep. And just that tiny little shift to understand what it is you're gaining and receiving yeah. and um, is, is a huge mindset shift which I love. Okay. So I want to hear, um, I have in my mind, like what I think when I think of leadership and how I could apply this to my own personal growth and development and yeah. sobriety journey. But I, I want to hear it from you first, like break it down for us as curious listeners who like, sure. we just, we don't know what Angie you're talking about. So school us. <laughs> that, yes. Yes. I am a certified master for um, authors of a book that's been out for 40 plus years called The Leadership Challenge. And the framework of The Leadership Challenge is one I was introduced to in graduate school. And the five practices are what I used on a personal level when I needed to, when I was at that crossroads of, of not knowing what was available. And the five practices start with model the way, which invites a leader to clarify their values and align their behaviors consistent with their values. The second practice is inspire a shared vision, which looks at how do my behaviors continue to move me forward toward the, the dreams and aspirations that I have. The third practice is challenge the process, 
which is looking beyond the ways of normally doing things and finding new uh, and innovative ways to move forward. The fourth practice is called enable others to act. And that is about encouraging and equipping and empowering other individuals to really find their own sense of self and be able to contribute to the collective good of a team or an organization. And then the fifth practice is called encourage the heart. And this is really spending time on an individual and collective level of recognizing and rewarding and celebrating progress over perfection. So of course, each of these practices were written within the context of a leader in the workplace. But obviously, just as I'm describing them, they are incredibly relevant to leading one's self away from what no longer serves us, which in my case was alcohol, and toward a life that's grounded in values, mm -hmm. and then followed through with the actions and activities and decisions that continue to support those values. So as a certified master for the Leadership Challenge, I speak and consult with these five practices in traditional organizational settings. I'm a contractor with the federal government, so I will work with government agencies on organizational culture and leadership development using these same five practices. So the universality of it is that not only are they relevant on a very personal, intimate level, they are relevant as a leader of teams and companies and businesses. And that's the power that I found in realizing that the things I had learned about being an exemplary leader at work were the same tools that I could use to being an exemplary leader in life. Yeah, I love that. And it, it so speaks, I come from corporate America before I broke away from it. And I, towards the end of my career, really had firm boundaries and like a, a strong value around this idea of work-life integration versus yes. work-life balance. Yep. And this is kind of a lot like of what I'm hearing here is if we can acknowledge exactly this, like your strengths and your expertise and all of these incredible things that you're doing to change companies and change teams and change leaders. It's like light bulb, light bulb. Oh my gosh, this can right? be the same in my own life, you know? Um, like model the way I, I, again, I'm coming from like kindergartner seat over here on my side of the screen, but as I immediately want to apply this to recovery, to sobriety, mm -hmm. like this to me is such a beautiful way of explaining to somebody, for example, if you want to I'm trying to think if you want to become a, a public speaker, a successful public speaker, right? You model the way you embody what it is to be a public speaker, correct? Right. You don't just right. go play baseball. Right. Um, and so I see this the same way for sobriety. Like the first step is just act like a fucking sober person. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if, what if does it take? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and for me, it was striving to be the best person that I could made me a better mom, a better daughter, a better friend, a better sibling. So focusing on myself first, mm -hmm. while at face value, that sounds very selfish. Mm -hmm. That's the way that I can be the best in 
all of my roles, all of my identities, so to speak. So I think for a very long time, I had that back ass words, right? I thought that I had to sacrifice who I was in order to be better at all those roles. Yeah. But quite honestly, we lead from within. So until we are grounded in who we are first, then all of those other roles are not truly authentic because we might be disconnected with our sense of self. Mm -hmm. And I think you can get to a stage where you sometimes resent some of those roles. Like if you identify as a mother first, I have a daughter, right? So I've, I can relate to what you're sharing here. Um, and when I put that as my number one identity or the, you know, the only thing that I'm kind of put on this earth for the most important thing, it's certainly one of the most important things. Yes. Yes. But, um, but as a, I was a single mom for the first five years of my daughter's life. And it was in those years that I struggled and resented being a mom. And the reason I did was because I was doing it backwards. I wasn't putting myself first. I wasn't kind of acknowledging, you know, filling my cup and that kind of thing. Do you think there's any value to the idea of fake it till you make it? I'm, I'm applying this to like the model the way kind of idea. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering, I'm just curious, it popped into my mind. I'm just like curious your thoughts. Well, you know, I'm so, so much an advocate of authenticity mm. that when we say fake it till you make it to me, that's where my <laughs> mind goes is like, oh, that's inauthentic. I believe that we can embody the qualities of another individual until we feel that we have reached that level. So, you know, I, I think of it, I have an academic brain. I used to be a college faculty member. So sometimes <laughs> it, it sneaks its way in. But if we think of it in Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Totally. Right? Yep. So mm -hmm. at the very top is self-actualization. For for an individual to reach that level of self-actualization, there's a pyramid, right? And perhaps one of those, and, and whether it's safety or belonging or all of the, the layers of the pyramid that gets up to that, you know, perhaps we do have to ensure that we have a solid base. And with that, we try on some of these other characteristics and styles. And, and so, you know, maybe it's just semantics that faking it to me feels inauthentic. However, I do think that in order to find our authenticity, we have to know what doesn't work. Yeah. And maybe we have to try on these different characteristics and then be able to shed or, you know, step away from what no longer serves us. Yeah. So in, in that in, in that concept or, or that that scheme, I, I can better wrap my head around it. Yeah, I like that. And you use the word embody. And, you know, I like the word surround, right? And if yes. you know, we can throw another quote in there by Jim Rohn, right? We are oh, right. yeah. surround ourselves by. Yep. So in that sense, I, I kind of like where you're going with that. Like, we don't have to fake it, but let's, let's try these things on for size. And I love that as we apply it to recovery, because the only way you will find your path and you will find the resource and the tools that work best for you is to collect them all. Just keep yes. collecting them yes. all, right? Yeah. Um, yes. AA, you tried it. It didn't yep. work. Like, yep. that's okay. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, and that's something, you know, the AA model does well is they say, keep what works and get rid of what doesn't. Yep. And, and it, it is that that part is absolutely true yeah. that if you find something that sticks, stick with it. If you find something that stickiness 
feels yucky, then get rid of it. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I want to pick apart. Well, I want to pick apart all of them, but in case we run out of time, I want to make sure we hit on challenge the process. Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> because that is like so fiery and hot and like, yep. I just love it. So I'm uh, dig into that uh, with us and, and how you can apply that to yes. uh, the topic of today's conversation. The easiest way to describe it was giving myself permission to forge my own path forward. And that meant acknowledging that AA was not my way, while also acknowledging that AA is the way for many others, and including members of my own family, members, you know, close friends of mine, but that it was okay for me to say that isn't my way forward. This is, and, and honestly, using self-leadership practices, I had nothing else. So I was kind of making it up as I went along saying, wow, if I start with model the way, I know my values, I consistently align my actions with my values. Okay, that worked. Mm -hmm. So now I'll inspire a vision of what I see for myself as a role model in whatever this alcohol-free slash sober space is going to look like. Mm -hmm. Challenge the process meant my gosh, not only am I giving myself permission to do this, I'm creating my own processes and pathway forward. Mm -hmm. So that's where mindfulness became an incredibly important part of my system or my habits and, and continues to be. I am a, um, I, I practice yoga almost every day. And so yoga or some type of outlet um, physical exercise is a, continues to be a big component. So challenging the process just meant creating, and James Clear talks about it in Atomic Habits, right? You know, it, you create the systems to support the habits to keep you moving forward. And that's essentially what challenge the process is all about, mm -hmm. implementing the systems that are going to support the habits that keep us in a, in a healthy uh, state of well-being. Oh, I like that. So we are, it's so, it's so interesting how like you interpret it in different ways. So I, I hear and absolutely love everything you're saying. And now as I read it, challenge the process. Yes, this is challenging this, the current systems that we have in place, yes. or maybe we don't have systems in place is oftentimes the case. Right. And so just implementing those with laws of behavior change or whatever it is. Um, and then I also interpreted this as like challenge the process, meaning in a way like I just, the first thing that came to my mind was like, go outside of your comfort zone. And mm -hmm. so, you know, challenge the process in sobriety, meaning, you know, again, you don't have to know what the outcome is of going outside the comfort zone or challenging the process, but like, what would it feel like if you went to a concert without alcohol or like challenging those norms that as, you know, a multi-decade drinker myself had really instilled, you know, decade after decade after decade um, and really challenging those processes, like challenging the process of an, of a, an active drinker. Um, and just, just do it one at a time, right? Like nobody's saying go out to dinner and go to a concert and do this like all in one day or week. Um, yeah. But maybe just picking one at a time um, to just, again, just flip the script a little bit. On yeah, and, and that's something that as I became more secure uh, in eliminating alcohol um, and moving forward, 
I am getting more and more courageous in the spaces where I am vocally and visibly challenging processes. My son plays football for the Iowa Hawkeyes and in Iowa City, tailgating is huge. Most college towns, right? And of course, alcohol plays a a critical role for many people. It's not game day if booze isn't involved. And at first I'm like, oh my God, how am I going to tailgate without alcohol? And then I just showed up and started doing it. So I tailgate with about 20 other Iowa football families and they they totally know I'm sober. They totally know that I'm, you know, bringing my cooler of alcohol-free beer and any beverages and, you know, they'll toast before games and I'll toast with my alcohol. And so the alcohol is not what makes tailgating great. It's the people who make tailgating great. And so that was an area um, when I was, was maybe six months, I can't remember. I I know that I posted on Facebook at my 30-day milestone um, sharing you just, you know, just the fact that I was celebrating 30 days of sobriety. And it wasn't long after that I posted it on LinkedIn and people, friends of mine were like, Oh my gosh, Angie, what are you doing? You're sacrificing your reputation. I'm oh, like, the hell I am. <laughs> I, I said, I know you know, for for decades, I felt I was the only one, the only professional woman, the only leader working in HR, you know, organizational people capacity things. I knew I wasn't the only one who struggled with an addiction while, you know, still being a, a somewhat contributing member of society. And it's continued to pick up steam. So more times than not, whether it's on LinkedIn or, you know, Instagram or any social media, I am who I am. And anybody who knows and loves and respects me knows that sobriety and leadership are part of my journey. And if they don't like that, then they don't need to be part of my energy. And and I'm, yeah, challenging the process of, you know, alcohol's place in workplaces, alcohol's role in society in general. Um, you know, and I'm just not going to apologize for bringing up the opportunity to change the narrative. Yeah, no, thank you. And I think that story is such a great example of the amount of work that we do have to do with the stigma surrounding addiction and alcoholism. Like that's all that is. It's just, oh yeah, Angie Louise, you guys have work to do. Like let's, let's go because that's all, all that feedback that you received. And I'm sure in addition to that feedback, you received countless messages of support. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Like that too. Um, but the, it's interesting. I actually chose to share my story first on LinkedIn because I was, I'm still working in corporate America. And for me, like that was my social platform at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was just my, and I, I was, I mean, this was before I had started coaching anything. So I, I did it really out of just like genuine to overuse the word authenticity, just like to put myself out there. And, uh, it was, it's not shocking as much now, but at the time, the amount of people that message on the side to say thank you I'm in the same boat or I've had the same oh yeah I've had the same thoughts um and there is so much as a woman in leadership in the workplace there is so much work to be done on on that front and I can imagine that you kind of bridging this gap I mean as a sober curious person in the workforce to see this approach to recovery would feel very safe to me 
Yes. Um, yeah. Right. Because these are, these are, like you said, these are things you're doing every day at work and we're just kind of yeah. bridging that gap with them. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. Really and I, I really am hopeful that as we continue to gain momentum and sober curiosity and, and freedom from alcohol and, and sobriety in general becomes more mainstream, that workplaces will start offering programs like smart recovery, you know, bring coaches and bring meetings into work and equip your employees with skills they need to be more productive in life and work and communities, their families, all the things, mm -hmm. because they deserve that support. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I had workplaces where I joined um, a new company a while ago when I was still in active addiction. And during orientation, they were talking about all of the, the work parties that they had. And one of them made the comment, it's a good thing that you drink when you work here. And now in hindsight, I'm like, what, what? what yeah. and and yet it is so prevalent to have you know really that type of culture at work and society in general so yeah the more voices we can elevate saying that there's a way to celebrate without alcohol being at the center of it then you know the louder that will continue to get yeah and i think this approach is is such a I don't want to choose the wrong word here, but I'm just going to use the word safe approach. And the reason I'm choosing that word is because as a sober curious person or somebody that's questioning your relationship with alcohol, it is very scary. And to do something like go to an AA meeting or to jump on even a smart meeting, right? Like to do something as official as to identify yourself can be very scary. What I love about these five practices is like, we're just talking about becoming better human beings. Yes, <laughs> That's it. And if alcohol still falls into your equation, maybe on a however often for you, and that still fits your values and your model, and you're following these five practices, so be it, right? I don't I don't hear you saying you're dictating this is a sobriety, non-sobriety thing, right? It's just mm -hmm. all about your own personal values and, yeah. and growth and development. Yeah. Um, yep. Talk to us about Encourage the Heart. Oh my gosh, that that one, the, the thing that's super cool about Encourage the Heart is that when we encourage someone else, there's that boomerang effect, right? Mm -hmm. We encourage another's heart and that encourage comes back to us, that encouragement comes back to us. So there's this reciprocity that is just inherent. And for me, I started, this was part of mindfulness, but I started a daily gratitude practice shortly after my my sobriety journey started and instead of instead of every night like saying three things i was thankful for i started that way but i kept saying i'm thankful for my kids i'm thankful for my dog and it, it felt like i wasn't being creative enough so instead i shifted it and started writing three good things mm. so at the end of every day i kept a notebook by my bed and i would write three good things that may or may not had involved my family maybe it involved you know i someone complimented my hair i mean so it helped me yeah. get laser focused on finding good things throughout the day and keeping track of them mm -hmm. so i became more observant and and recognizing you know the happiness that that covid brought even while we were focused on a lot of the the less than positive aspects of it so focusing on those three good things, I would also then extend that gratitude to other people. Mm -hmm. 
so i i was living by myself at the time that i was going through um the the covid and and the early sobriety days but yet you know i would stay in touch with my kids and my parents and so i would express my appreciation and my gratitude for them and again just that reciprocity you know reaching out to friends reconnecting with college classmates telling people how much they matter to my step forward you know whenever i would mention something about my journey and someone would acknowledge me privately letting them know how much i love and appreciate the fact that they're that they stuck with me right they're they're still part of my life mm -hmm. and and so encourage the heart is is still something that i strive to do on a regular basis and it's yes it's random acts of kindness but it also you know saying our common courtesies like please and thank you and i appreciate you and i love you we seem to have lost touch with some of those basic manners um that that i learned growing up but i'm i'm glad to help encourage that movement to make those more regular part of our everyday interactions and conversations because it truly is encouraging when we acknowledge the gifts of somebody else. Yeah. And I would imagine that like when you first started this practice, maybe it felt awkward. It was hard to think of things. And then over time, as you encourage the heart, you're literally like stretching the heart, right? Like, yes. and all of a sudden you're probably at a point now where you are naturally inclined to recognize what you're grateful for or to recognize those more positive whereas it is kind of human nature to go to the negative a lot of the time yep. um so i i love that idea of not only encouraging your own heart but there's a pay it forward yes component to to it as well which kind of is um uh, tell us the difference then with enable others to act for the collective good and yep. kind of what the differentiators are Enabling others to act really is serving as a mentor, mm -hmm. as a coach, um, equipping the skills and the resources, equ equipping someone else with the skills and the resources. So for me, that became in my early sobriety days, I connected with this naked mind and I hosted um, Zoom calls for their platforms just on a volunteer basis. So I was uh, I think it was called the exchange back then. And then I became a mentor for this naked mind. So it was enabling others um, steps forward, even at the same time that I was moving forward. So I see enabling others to act as walking beside them on their journey. Uh, in a workplace perspective, it means, you know, equipping people with essential skills and providing training and providing mentoring and providing coaching and access to personal and professional development resources so that they can continue to learn and grow and be able to enable others. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it's similar to encourage the heart, but it's a little bit more tangible where you're equipping them with the skills and resources that they need to operate from a place of being able to serve at their personal best. Yeah, I love that. And I see so much of that in the communities. Like one of the things I love about the Together Sober Facebook community is this idea and, and, and all of them, it's not just Together Sober, is this idea that like 
like you said, walking side by side, like we are all on even playing field. It doesn't matter if you're 25 years sober or 25 days sober, like we are all on the same playing field. And I love, again, the reciprocity where these are made up names where John might really need some support this week. And so, you know, he's reaching out and people are filtering back to him. And then one or two months from now, all of a sudden you see John, you know, helping somebody else or giving yeah. words of encouragement to somebody else. And yeah. it, it it is such a beautiful cycle um, that there's no beginning and end, right? We all are constantly right. like needing that support and giving that support yeah. Yeah. and that push and pull of it. And uh, I mean, the, they say opposite of addiction is, is uh, connection, right? And right. so that's where right. I see a lot of that enabling others to act to the collective yeah. good, that connection piece of it, like functioning there. Yep. And with that, you know, it it's connection with self first. So I, I can say for many, many years, I did not have a connection to myself. So I would negatively impact my connection with other people because I didn't know who I was. So I didn't know how to authentically show up in my relationships with other people. One of the things that they say about leadership is leadership is a relationship. And that relationship also begins with ourselves. The best leaders are lifelong learners. So those of us who are having success on our sober journey, we are still learning and growing along our way. And it's, it's just been fascinating for me to see how the integration of so many different areas of my life that I thought were very disjointed now coming together. And, you know, for me, mindfulness, I, there was a point in time when I thought mindfulness was a hoax. Mm-hmm. I thought it was something that, you know, people people made up to make type A personalities like me feel even more inadequate or incompetent. And now it is an essential part of who I am and how I teach others to become better stewards of their own sense of well-being. I like that a lot. Angie, as somebody now who is a believer in mindfulness and somebody who's very type A, like, you know, business leadership oriented, talk to somebody who has the mindset about mindfulness that you did five years ago. Um, and maybe what like practices have worked for you or what approach that you've taken to again, really adapt it to like your personality and like who you are. Yeah. The program that I'm um, credentialed through offers a variety of different tools for mindfulness meditation. And, And I, like many thought, oh, it's all about breathing or it's all about emptying your mind of thoughts. And, and that is not what is accurate about mindfulness. I, I have asthma, so breathing and paying attention to my breathing actually makes me overwhelmed. So for a long time, I could not use my breathing as an anchor. So if that is the truth for other people, I talk to them about, you know, using sound or using sensation or an eyes open meditation where you can focus on an object of attention. So it's giving people, it's really changing the mindset or the mentality of what mindfulness really is 
It's not about sitting cross-legged on the floor. It can be if that's the posture that works for people. That doesn't work for me. And the types of meditation that work on an individual basis, you know, you do have to try a variety. And, and so when I'm teaching the four-week course that I do, we introduce a variety of different types of meditation from walking meditation to eating meditation to guided imagery to um, the gatha to, oh my gosh, what else do we have? We do have different types of breathing, um, but it's dynamic breathing, it's belly breathing, because there are so many ways to practice being mindful. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 what amazed me when I had this light bulb moment was it's not about not having thoughts. I mean, it's our brains are wired to have thoughts. Our brain is doing what brains are designed to do and that's produce thoughts. It's what we do with the thoughts. It's it's like allowing them to be that raging river and they're just going down. Um, And so that's an analogy I use a lot is, you know, I'm an observer of my thoughts. I don't have to jump off into that raging river and float along with them, I can choose to put myself on the riverbank and just let the thought go by. Yeah, I love that. That reminds me of a lot of the work that you see in like DBT training, which is dialectical behavior therapy, which is like this idea, the mindfulness piece of it is this idea of like approaching things from a non-biased, non-judgmental perspective. And like you just said, like the thoughts are coming, but it's, it's, what are you doing with them? Are you judging right. with them? Are you, you know, what are you doing with them? So I love that. I've been doing um, the, I'm a Jay Shetty, like super fan. Yeah. Um, and uh, he, so he has a, a, a little series on the Calm app and it's like the daily J and it's a seven minutes, but like of the seven minutes, the first five is Jay just kind of like sharing a story or a little anecdote or something like that. And then it's like 90 seconds of meditation. Um, So again, like coming from a Buddhist monk, you guys, like whatever we want it to be as long as it's serving us. Well, and he talks about, you know, I was think like a monk was one of the first books I read because it came out, you know, in, in the early days of my of my journey and then of course i'm also have read the eight rules of love and and just you know listening to his approach that how do we calm that monkey mind right and it's not the same way for everybody because the the circus of our mind and the monkeys that are jumping around look different for every person and and finding what works it means giving it an an open mind at at trying them out and giving giving them the the value that they have Yeah. And I would imagine this all goes hand in hand, right? Like the more kind of focused we can be on model the way, inspire shared vision, challenge the process, enabling others to act for the collective good and encouraging the heart, like also integrating the mindfulness into all of this. It's kind of like there's a chicken and egg scenario, right? You don't do one before the other. It's just kind of, and then the more you can integrate them together, uh, the more you'll just find yourself on that path. And what I love about this too, and we don't have time to go into it, but I just, I feel like if we use these five practices, this is how we find our passion. This is how we find our purpose, right? Yes. Um, yes. Because this to me is just creating inner truth. Like, right, right. By, by not, I don't want to say by the end of it, but as we, you know, go along this process. Yeah. And, and we're all evolving and growing. And so that passion and purpose will grow and evolve right along with us. But as long as we're staying true to our values 
and doing the things that keep us moving forward consistently, then we are our self-actualized self and, and becoming the best and truest versions of who we can be. Incredible. Angie, this conversation I, I can continue in so many directions. And I, I want to I want to first find out where listeners can find you, get in touch with you, get some more information about some of, of what we've chatted about today. And then also if there's anything that we I didn't ask you today or anything we didn't touch on that you is really kind of close to your heart that you wanted to share with listeners today, we'd love to hear that too. The best way to connect with me is through my social media platforms and depending on, you know, which context works best. Uh, LinkedIn, I will post a lot of content and, and my content is more about substance. Uh, sometimes social media leans towards the sizzle and I focus a lot on, on actual um, actionable content. And so I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Facebook, both as a personal profile, as well as Angie Chaplin Mindful Leadership as a page on Facebook. Um, on Instagram, um, my website, angiechaplin.com is also available. And I really invite individuals who want to have conversations and, and perhaps need prompts to have that conversation with themselves and explore what leadership development might mean uh, from the inside out. And, and there's many conversations that can be had as a result of that journey. Thank you so much, Angie. I My pleasure. I have one more question for you. Um, it's a question I ask all of our podcast guests, but I'm going to switch it up for you because okay. you, my friend, are, are have provided such a... Uh, uh, representation from something that just I think we is underrepresented and I think the vast population wouldn't even think to apply this stuff to mm -hmm. uh, to our recovery so thank you so much for for this value today but the question is this Angie if you could create one rule or law it's hypothetical so we're just going to assume that it's going to be followed and implemented as it relates to your topic of expertise mindful leadership so one rule or law about mindful leadership to make the world a better place, what would that rule or law be? It's two parts because I'm challenging the process. So part, <laughs> part one, talk talk. <laughs> yep, yep. part one would be to start mindfulness training or education uh, in preschool and to help have students understand that from an extremely early age. Uh, then perhaps um, junior high, beginning of high school is where I would integrate values, conversations, and alignment because many of us talk values. We might know what values means, but we're not able to actually articulate them. And that type of values conversation, whether it's through values coaching or um, a formal values alignment session, those early conversations as emerging adults help us form a pathway forward that is authentic to who we are and the type of leader we aspire to be. Yeah, I agree. If I kind of picture what envision what you're sharing right now. And I envision like, what if my nine-year-old was learning this stuff right now? She's yeah. learning it from me, but what if every nine-year-old was learning this stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. The world would, without a shadow of a doubt, be a better place. Absolutely. So um, it's approved. We're going to implement it. 
<laughs> with all my influence in the world. <laughs> um, no, Andrew, this conversation has been insightful, inspiring. It really has gotten me thinking in so many ways of how I can start implementing these just on my own personal development journey mm-hmm. and growth. Together, so we're listeners. Angie has an incredible story. We like barely scratched the surface of her actual story today. So please know there's a couple links in the show notes. Um, She has a few features and some publications that really kind of get a little bit more in depth with her story. Um, And AngieChaplin.com is where you can access a lot of this information as well. And we'll include everything else in the show notes too. But please just do me a favor and fill your toolbox. Fill your toolbox with the resources and the insight that Angie presented today because this is good stuff, you guys. This is the stuff that doesn't just create sobriety. This is the stuff that creates lasting change. Um, And that's what we're trying to do here on Together Sober. So Angie, can't thank you enough for your contribution. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Breath of fresh air. And Together Sober listeners, you will hear from us next week with another story. If you're still listening right now, I'm going to assume that you really liked this episode. And if that's the case, can you please go ahead and rate and review the Together Sober podcast? What this does is organically puts the podcast into more listeners' ears, thus creating more lasting and effortless sobriety and mental peace for others.